Hello and welcome to the Eurasian Climate Brief, a podcast focusing on climate news in the region stretching from Eastern Europe and Russia down to the Caucasus and Central Asia. I'm Natalie Soer and joining me as usual is Boris Schneider and Angelina Davidova. We're in Glasgow again, continuing our special COP26 series, recording this episode a day after more than 100 countries committed to end and reverse deforestation. Among the signatories were many of the states of our region, some of the big guns, Russia, Poland, Ukraine. Joining them are also Albania, Armenia, Bosnia and Herzegovina, Estonia, Latvia, Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan, North Macedonia, Romania, Slovakia and Slovenia. We'll have a roundup of the latest climate news from the region at the end of this episode. Thanks, Natalie. Before we dive in, a quick note first to let you know that thanks to your support, we've managed to top the podcast charts in Russia's Earth Science category on Apple. So thank you so much for listening and writing enthusiastic reviews. Please keep them coming and don't forget to share the podcast link on Twitter. You will find us at Eurasian Climate. Now our guest this time is Paola Deda, Director of Forest, Land and Housing Division at the United Nations Economic Commission for Europe, the UNECE. Paola has been speaking today at the conference in Glasgow. I and Angelina caught up with her to discuss how the latest deforestation pledge might translate in the region. Could you, for us, please unpack the term deforestation? So, for example, what is the difference between deforestation and illegal logging, for example? And uh, can we really talk about deforestation in the Russian case, for example? Well, uh, that's that's a difficult question in the sense that uh, illegal logging is a cause of deforestation, but it's not the only one. Uh, there might be many. Actually, uh, if I recall correctly from one of our previous studies, the main cause of uh, uh, deforestation is actually urban expansion. And, uh, and this is an issue throughout the world and also in our region as a city expand in a way that is not sustainable. And this is an important point because sometimes you say, oh, you're talking about forests, so let's focus on forests. But you cannot talk about forests without talking about all other land uses. The real issue when it comes to climate change is the balance of land uses. And the way cities expand is, is unsustainable. Urban sprawl is unsustainable. Low density is unsustainable. And the moment you eat land for urban purposes with a very low density development, you're taking away land either to agriculture or to forest. And deforestation has been caused very often, again, by this fast urban expansion. Illegal logging is a phenomenon that, of course, leads to deforestation because it's illegal and it's cutting trees illegally for other, of course, economic purposes. But it's definitely not the only one. Uh, there are several ones. And as I said, a very serious one is fast, rapid, low-density urbanization. We have alternative. You see, again, it's not that we have to expand cities that way. And that's an unsustainable model of development. There are many that could be much more sustainable, including also having more trees. And here, perhaps I'm simplified, but I'm talking about urban forestry. Also, our cities need and must change by including ecosystems and including parks and including urban forests. And that's a big revolution for cities. 
uh, that should be starting as soon as possible. This is something also in, in, in my division we are advocating a lot. Can I just quickly comment on this? I feel like it's such an important topic. And I would also like to mention that in most countries of the region we're talking about, if we speak about grassroots environmental movement, so many movements are about urban greens and urban parks and urban forests. People willing to keep them, people willing to have more trees in the city. This is such a mass movement. It's it's really something. It's something new, but it's also something which builds up a lot of civil society strength from the bottom up. So yeah, it's it's a very important topic. And this topic is, however, uh, like on the other side from what we were saying at the very beginning, this topic of urban forests is very high perceived as the important topic for the general public. People care about it, people think about it, and people are willing to dedicate their time and energy for environmental campaigns to protect forests or have more forests in, in the cities. And if I may here, then I would like to talk to you about a challenge we launched to cities. It's called the Trees and Cities Challenge. And we challenge, we say we as UNICE, we challenge cities to plant trees and report the trees they are planting to us back at UNICE in a campaign really to stimulate urban forestry. So far, we are 11 million trees uh, pledged and 8 million trees planted from the cities that joined our initiative. So I take the opportunity of your podcast really to invite mayors, but uh, citizens that are listening to call their mayors and, and have them pledge uh, urban trees to this initiative. It's a, a crucial, as you said, grassroots need and campaign because uh, a lot could change, also in terms of climate change if we plant more trees and urban forests. Just to let you know the difference between a, in temperature between a street with trees, a dense canopy of trees, and a one without is eight degrees. So you can see the difference it makes in terms of immediate temperature, but also in terms of how you live your city, having parks and communities living their city fully and not in concrete uh, areas that are not good for environment, but are not good for people either. Um, thank you very much. Um, the uh, recent pledge to end and reverse deforestation by 2030. So what do you think? What is the significance of the pledge? And are these mere words? Um, is it like another set of empty targets? Or do you think that this could actually be implemented? Or in a different question, what are the main obstacles to a successful implementation of this target? It's interesting you're asking me about targets, right? It's 25 years that I work in the UN and, you know, wherever I was, I worked for a long time for the Convention on Biological Diversity and it was always these targets, right? You also have targets in SDGs and, and people say, okay, but we, we, we know already we will not reach them. Yeah, but the target per se, it might be aspirational but it's already committing you to something. Not having targets would be much worse. And I know there is the general impression that, oh, okay, we set a target, but you know, we never get there. Well, uh, maybe not, but not having would be worse, right? Um, at least you know that is your aspirational goal and should commit people. Um, I also believe that what the difference now as we go along is that uh, People, the population in general, world 
population is much more aware of the needs of the planet. Now, I think the, a lot of people know what COP26 is. Yeah, but we are a COP26. When you were a COP2, probably people have no idea what COP2 was or even COP10, right? It was only us who are in the sector, so we know. But now everybody knows what COP26 is. People are watching this on television. They hear about targets and they might think, oh, we'll never get there, but they're aware of targets. I'm pretty sure that, uh, you know, people didn't know about the biodiversity 2010 targets, right? Because it was a different time. So you have to put these targets in context and in a context of a world which is much more aware, conscious, and people are ready to ask to, more to their governments. And we have seen it also here at COP26 that this is the case. So I have to say that uh, I'm not that negative about targets. And, and even if I spent many hours in my career being there negotiating and you think, oh my God, I'm no, negotiating the comma or a word and it might not make a difference. Well, then put it in context, put it in the context of a much more aware world and in general population is more aware and is demanding more from their government, it will, it will have a stronger meaning and will have a, a sort of the obligation of a commitment from, from governments. So uh, whether this is reachable or not, again, I don't have the crystal ball, but uh, through scenarios, you might discover that, yes, it is achievable if you put the right ingredients in. And look, um, in my office is working both on the implementation of the bond challenge, which, you know, it's a big commitment, it's a big target for the world, as well as this trees and cities challenge. This is a smaller target for cities. And I was surprised when we launched at, at the commitment of cities and they are reaching their own targets for greening the cities. Citizens demand that and demand that to their mayors and mayors are accountable. So yes, we, we, we see change and I expect more change after. And it's not that I want to be, uh, you know, naively optimistic. I've seen a difference. And actually after 25 years of work, perhaps we tend to be less optimistic, but I, on the contrary, I see change, especially in the perception of people. You said something like, when we speak about forests at, during the UNFCCC negotiation process, we very often tend to concentrate on rainwater forests on southern forests and we seem to forget the boreal forests now why is that why is that boreal forest get so little attention and uh, what can be done about that well it's true what you're saying that basically boreal forests rarely make the headlines um, but that's not due to the fact they're less important on the contrary let me just give you some number just to, to put uh, some, some context around our talk today. Worldwide, of course, 45% of forests are tropical. So this is, of course, the largest and very important, of course, as a carbon sink and, and for climate change. But these are followed by 27%, which are boreal forests, most of which are really in the region covered by the UNECE, United Nations Economic Commission for Europe. We are talking about the Northern Hemisphere. We are talking about Canada, U.S., Russia, of course, uh, Sweden, Norway, and Finland, as well as uh, um, some other northern countries in Europe with a, with a minor percentage. 
we are following with 16% of temperate forests and 11% of subtropical. So uh, also in terms of size, boreal forests are large, covering 27% of the global forest areas, as we said, and more than 60% uh, actually 63% of our region, so Northern Hemisphere. They are actually the largest terrestrial carbon storage house in the world. It's difficult to say why they don't make the headlines and why they don't, uh, um, they don't have the, the, uh, what I will consider the correct political attention, but this is exactly what we are working on to make sure that this message is shared worldwide. That's why we took the opportunity also of COP26 to take this message and also to inform that a lot has been done, but a lot of is being done uh, really to, to put a boreal forest high on the political agenda of ministers and, and of countries. And what is happening with boreal forests as a result of climate change? I mean, the obvious consequences which we see and which I already spoken about in Russia are increasing wildfires. So there are more wildfires. They take more space. They're more intense year by year. Um, there's also more pests and uh, insects which are dangerous and harmful for forests. They also tend to live longer and they don't die in cold winters. Um, can you name some other consequences of climate change for the boreal forests? Of course, and let's not forget that the boreal biome is the one most strongly affected by rising temperatures than any other regions. Um, in recent centuries, the average temperature in the Arctic has actually increased two times faster than the average temperature on the rest of the planet. So uh, that's that's an important fact. And as a result, boreal forests have experienced larger and more severe wildfires, as you said, but also more outbreaks of pests and diseases and likely changes in biological diversity. That's a very important point. And species composition and generally a deterioration in moisture availability. In addition to this, permafrost soils are likely to further thaw, which will result in larger releases of methane. And this, as you know, is a very potent greenhouse gas. Uh, with climate change accelerating, and boreal forests might turn from significant carbon sinks to sources of carbon and other greenhouse gases, thereby, uh, of course, uh, further accelerating climate change. And this is something we don't want to happen. Wow, that indeed sounds very worrying. So you mean to say forests can actually become a source of carbon, not a sink of carbon? Why would that happen? Well, you know, the, the, the simplest example, of course, is wildfires, right? I mean, uh, a burning tree is a source of CO2. Um, and uh, with increasing temperatures, the likelihood of fires is, uh, is higher. And we don't have just to, to imagine this. Unfortunately, this has happened. This has happened in Russia this summer. If you think of the recent outbreak also of uh, the pine beetle in, in, in Canada, this has been a devastating example. And as climate change increases, the likelihood of these negative events also increase. And therefore, of course, forests can become a source of carbon indeed. Now, understanding the future of the carbon balance of the circumboreal forest and how also how climate change, forest use and management will 
alter the carbon balance is actually an essential point to design climate neutral solutions. So this is really what also the COP is about, but it's also what we should look for to make sure that forests are really carbon sinks and not a source of carbon. In light of climate-related uncertainties uh, and accelerating disturbances, including the increased intensity and severity, for instance, of wildfires, scientists actually continue to advance the much-needed scientific knowledge on efficient climate change mitigation and adaptation options, management responses with the para within the paradigm of sustainable forest management and climate change effects. I mean, to put it simply, we have to evolve our knowledge to understand, number one, how we can, you know, forests can continue to be mitigating factors for climate, right, or mitigate the effects of, of climate change provoked by something else, but at the same time as well, how to adapt to a change that is here. So we talked about species composition. That's the first also step. We will have to look at which species can grow where and what species are best to grow and um, and how as well, because this is an evolving knowledge um, and uh, also foresters have to face this every day. The fact that they have to be, they need new training, they need new knowledge to be able to manage the, the forests uh, that are changing. In which other ways can we actually adapt our forests to climate change? I mean, what can be done in terms of sustainable forest management? Um, should there be new practices introduced? And also, large areas of Russia's forests are actually not man-managed. They are still primary wild forests. What will happen to them? Well, I mean, it's, it's difficult to answer uh, what should we do, right? Because uh, this, as uh, we also discussed in our event today, it depends very much on the forest, on the climatic condition or, or, or the forest where, where we are looking at. But this is a knowledge that we were missing. And this is why we put together this team of specialists within UNICE in our work together with FAO. And it's a team of specialists or scientists that specialize on, on boreal forests. Um, and they're well equipped to do exactly you know, this. To what kind of knowledge do we need to better and sustainably manage boreal forests? What they do, they bring together their knowledge uh, that uh, scientists have with policymakers, because sometimes we have the knowledge, but we don't communicate it to, to policymakers to make the right decision, and also to regularly exchange uh, sustainable forest management in the boreal zone, to exchange information, to exchange ideas, uh, etc. Uh, they continue to collaborate also with research institutes like IFRA, for instance, the International Boreal Forest Research Organization, or UFRO, that is International Union for Forest Research Organization. So knowledge, research, which is the basis for best, best practices. Also, there is a lot of work to contribute to the Sustainable Development Goals. We know that, of course, uh, um, Goal 15 is the management of terrestrial biodiversity and biome, so that is an important uh, goal uh, for, for the world to reach. And then, of course, uh, in, in general, is about information, and that's something we were also discussing today, that sometimes when you come at COP, information is very technical, and it doesn't trickle down to, you know, to, to, uh, the, the people that are not specialized in, in forest management, right? They might have other jobs and other interests, but they need to understand also how this works. Uh, what to do, how to adapt, uh, the, the, the answer is, Know your forest, know your options, 
uh, and then consider every time what is the solution. There is not one that fits all. And this is actually a message we, we, we want to repeat because when you say forest, you think, okay, this is just a bunch of trees uh, throughout the world. No, there are many differences. There are many differences in ecosystems, in the biodiversity that lives in certain areas, in the endangered species that might be present in a specific forest. So if you want to preserve a, a particular animal, or then you will have to have a particular management for that area that might be different from, from a forest that is perhaps uh, adjacent, uh, but, but it's not the same. It doesn't have the same species composition. Again, for that, you need specific knowledge. You also mentioned that you have a new study coming out in a couple of weeks. And uh, in that study, you analyze scenarios for future forest development in Russia, but also other countries of the region, like the Central Asia. Um, could you give us more details about the study and maybe some insight into what awaits us in the future? Absolutely. This is uh, uh, what we call the outlook study in our jargon, and it's basically an outlook on the forest of the whole region. So North America, uh, Russia, uh, Central Asia, but as well as Europe. Uh, what do we do? We want to know what are our options, right? As specialist policymakers, what can we do if? And it's not. We're not talking about predictions. Huh? We don't have. Uh, the crystal ball to tell you what will happen from now to 2050 or 2040. We, we wish we had. Uh, what we do, we develop what we call scenarios uh, using, uh, um, and I'm going to use a complicated term, but it's global forest products model. It's called GF. PM uh, is a model whereby that well that interlinks different dimensions uh, of related to forests. For instance, forest area, growing stock, the market supply and demand for wood-based products, and let's say elaborates all this data. And depending on what is your impact, you, your scenario, expected scenario, for instance, climate change details you how the forest will potentially look like, what will be the threats, what will be the challenges, but sometimes what will be the positive outcomes, right? In some regions, climate change, if you exclude fires, then might, might mean more productivity. So, okay, that can be an effect. Is that effect positive enough to counterbalance the negative ones or not? And this is also information that we pass on to policymakers uh, so that policymakers can understand what the impact of their decisions could be in the future. And we think this is very important because policymakers need this information to make correct decisions, right? What we call evidence-based decision-making. They have to make based it on evidence, but sometimes they have to project their decision, okay, what can happen in 20, 30, or 40 years? And that's what we are trying to do to through these scenarios and these uh, models, trying to see what could happen to our forests in the future. And this is exactly what our study tried to do. Of course, one of the scenarios was a climate change because that's the most urgent and pressing challenge for our region as well, for the forests in our regions as well. Um, we've been talking quite a lot about Russia and the boreal forests, but as you mentioned, you also work in Central Asia. Can you give us some data and some scenarios for Central Asia. So what that region is to expect uh, with the changing climate and the climate getting drier and the glaciers melting down? 
Well, I mean, what uh, you can imagine in Central Asia um, is further desertification and reduction of forests. And this is something we don't want to happen. Um, it is a ma the, the, the issue is how we manage these uh, landscapes to increase the amount of forest uh, so that uh, the landscape in general will be restored, not only for forests themselves, but also for livelihood, because there are many activities also in the region that are based uh, on what you grow in forests, but also the production of, of wood and also to stop desertification and really to maintain biodiversity in the region. It's, of course, a completely different scenario compared to the boreal one, right? We are talking about a, a very diff different challenge. We are talking about different uh, forest coverage, also in terms of, of amount of forest. However, uh, what is uh, uh, not different is the level of commitment of countries. We have experienced an enormous understanding of the challenges and a will to commit um, we have been working with countries in Central Asia uh, from 2000, I mean, even be before, but with a big uh, ministerial meeting in 2018 that led to a big pledge uh, under the bond challenge uh, up to uh, 3.5 million were committed uh, to forest landscape restoration and my seem a small number for a country like Russia that has the largest co forest coverage in the world, but for Central Asian countries, this is a lot. And also because growing forest uh, in, in countries, in, for instance, uh, that have steppes and, and, and really uh, difficult climates is, is a huge challenge. But that's a commitment uh, that is not only on paper, we have seen a lot of action in this regard and commitment of, of countries and communities as well, because there is a very strong understanding of how forests are linked to the community, to the health of the community, as well to livelihood in communities. We also know that very often we have to look at a different type of agriculture and what we call agroforestry is something that works extremely well in these countries because of course having more shade having and having trees that will also bring and maintain water and soil uh, not only fertility but permeability is something that would also support agriculture in a much um, stronger and better way and more sustainable as well. Um, now, there's a lot of talk about something called bioeconomy, and this is also something uh, which is spoken and discussed right now at the COP. And that means that the world economy uh, will probably use more forest-based products, or like wood-based products, for our clothing, for packaging, for many other items that we use on a daily basis, uh, which were previously produced, say, from plastics or from oil and, or other uh, minerals. Do you think it's rather good news or maybe not so good news? And do you see also prospects for bioeconomy for countries of the region, like Russia and other Eurasian countries? Absolutely. Uh, to me, overall, is good news. I think it's pretty clear, uh, especially at COP, but you know, we have learned throughout these last years, that the linear, what is called the linear economy, has failed. Because we had an economy that was producing and wasting a lot, but waste remained here, <laughs> was very rarely recycled. And uh, we had to move from this to a 
circular economy, whereby waste is, is actually a resource. Now, when it comes to forest, we know that circularity is a concept that is well understood. Well, historically, uh, foresters know that if you cut a tree, you have to plant a new one, right? Because also this is long term for the next generations. So um, forests perhaps are really the, um, the best example of how we can have an economy based on uh, biological products, natural uh, resources, and circular. Now, obviously, we are asking a lot to forests. You can see it also in this COP. We want everything from forests. We want them to be carbon sinks. We want them to maintain biodiversity. We want them to give us uh, materials for sustainable clothing, but also to burn for energy because it's renewable, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And even food, right? Because, you know, many economies are based on also on, on products from forests. Wow, right? Uh, perhaps we asked them a little bit too much. So this means that we have to decide what to privilege and when. It doesn't mean we have to ask everything to the same forest. Perhaps we can decide uh, when and where is, is best to use. Well, we were discussing this afternoon that 60% of uh, clothes in the world are made of polyester. Polyester is plastics. It's actually really oil-based product. We should not wear it the same way we should not uh, use plastics. And, and wearing polyester also means that whenever we wash our clothes, we release in the environment and ultimately in the oceans microplastics. And I don't need to explain here how bad that is. But uh, can we make a revolution overnight and start using forest-based products, so lyocell and uh, you know other sustainable fiber from forest tomorrow morning? I don't think so. And, and this is exactly actually what our outlook study is looking at. Okay, the substitution effect can happen and how and for what type of products. And we have to be very careful also in when we look into that. So that is a process that we are moving towards a bio-based circular economy uh, without asking to force everything too fast, because that's, of course, we, we know what that will lead to. We lead to deforestation and, and to, to problems that we have been trying to solve with sustainable forest management over the years, especially in our region. But I'm confident that there are options. And uh, yes, uh, there is a trend to start looking into these uh, solutions that come from forest, and it, many of them actually already on the market. So it's not that we're talking about science fiction. This is happening. The point is how and how, what is the balance and how we, can, how we can get there. Thank you so much, Paula. I'm so happy we met today at COP26 in Glasgow, and thank you for being with us on the Eurasian Climate Brief podcast. Uh, wishing you all the best with your work. I have to say I was really impressed with everything you did and you do in life from the UN agencies to working with scientists and helping drafting scenarios for future forests. And you'll hear more reports, news and interviews from COP26 in Glasgow. Thank you. Thanks very much to Paola Duda for joining us on the podcast. And now let's take a look at the latest climate stories from our region. Ukraine, Azerbaijan, Slovenia, Estonia and Croatia have joined a global initiative to phase out coal, the Powering Past Coal Alliance. 
This raises the number of participating countries to 165. Ukraine intends to phase out the fuel by 2040, while Croatia has aimed for 2033. Azerbaijan and Estonia are already coal-free. Slovenia is due to announce its target in the near future. Meanwhile, Serbia's president, Aleksandar Vucic, told Chinese state television on the 3rd of November he would be a liar if he were to commit his country to phase out coal within two or three years. The head of Serbia said the country needed first and foremost to keep their economy running and the electricity on. Uzbekistan strengthened its climate pledge on the 4th of November. The country plans to slash emissions per unit of GDP by 35% by 2030 from 2010 levels, while it had previously only committed to 10%. It also sets out to produce at least 25% of its electricity from renewable sources by 2030. And South Korea's leader, President Moon Jae-in, met with his counterpart Viktor Oban in Budapest on Wednesday. Both leaders committed to net zero by 2050 and agreed they could not envisage such a target without relying on nuclear energy. Thanks for listening to this edition of the Eurasian Climate Brief and a big thank you to our supporters at the Battleground magazine. Don't forget to follow the podcast in your favourite app and you'll find us on social media at Eurasian Climate. We'd love to know your thoughts on the topics we discuss in each episode. We'll be back in a couple of days with a new episode, so see you then. Mm-hmm.